This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I am Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have a very special returning guest to tell us who you are and what you do. Well, I'm J.L. Collins, and I'm uh, author of The Simple Path to Wealth, uh, How I Lost Money in Real Estate Before It Was Fashionable, and my latest book that's newly out, Pathfinders. Before we get into our conversation, we had a conversation, you and I, JL, a couple of weeks ago, and you told us about the number of books The Simple Path to Wealth has sold. And there's, I hate to focus on this, but I think it's pretty incredible. Can you tell us what that number is? Yeah, we're closing in on 700,000. That's all uh, formats. So that's print, ebook, audible all around the world so that includes the international sales and but the bulk of it is is u.s but yeah it's it's nobody's more amazed than i am <laughs> and how many languages has it been translated into oh you're testing my memory here you know i want to say that it's actually been published in 12 15 somewhere in that range and then I have deals for about 20 or 22 altogether. So whenever you sign one of these deals, they have a window. The, the publisher that signs the deal has a window somewhere between 12 and 18, maybe 24 months usually, that they have in which to get the book published. So it can be a year, even pushing on two years before, before it actually comes out in the language. So that's why there's the gap between the two. And did you have any, well, if I remember right, the last time we talked, maybe you had 300 or 350K copies sold, which it's been a couple of years. So what do you think the main driver is for sort of the acceleration of more sales at this point? Because it was published in what, like 2017? 2016. Yeah, so it it's really kind of kind of grown ever since it was published. It peaked during COVID, and then the last couple of years, 2022, 2022 and twenty twenty three, have been they were almost identical, uh, but lower than the COVID COVID high. So uh, when it's when twenty twenty two was less than than twenty twenty one, I was thinking, oh well, is is now is it just going to sort of drift away into oblivion? Uh, it appears not. It appears just that the 2021 was that unusual spike, and we're kind of getting back to normal. But normal is a pretty good level. That's crazy. What is the second biggest country? Well, I'll back up a second. I have to imagine America is the number one for sales. Do you have any idea what number two and number three are? So Canada and the UK and the EU in general – are, are probably, you know, two, two, three, and four, but I'm not quite sure what order they're in. I would, I would guess, yeah, I would guess Canada or UK are probably neck and neck. And Okay. Yeah. Cool. So today we're going to talk about some fire talking points that I'm interested to hear JL's take on. 
We're going to talk a little bit about books and maybe a little bit about asparagus at the end. I'll, I'll bet you didn't see the third one coming, did you, JL? <laughs> yeah, that's the one I'm looking forward to. <laughs> Let's eat dessert first. <laughs> So in 1930, John Maynard Keynes once said that everyone would work 15 hours per week by 2030. Instead, we blew up our lifestyles. And I'm wondering, JL, do you think fire is a reaction to this inflation of our lifestyles? In other words, maybe fire folks are just living the Keynes dream where we're making 2030 money, but we're living like it's 1970. So we're just taking advantage of the Delta and we haven't allowed our lifestyles to be, to be blown up. So yeah, discuss was Keens, right? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I remember when I was a kid hearing that, that, you know, the, the amount of time that we worked would be a fraction in the, in the, that was one of the predictions a lot of futurists made. And certainly things evolved in a fashion where that, should have been is in fact possible but as humans we chose not to do that we chose instead to inflate our our lifestyles and go from families where one person was working to where they're frequently both are and and i think that's kind of the the human drive and nature into always wanting more and there's an irony in that, I think, because that drive to always want more tends to make us as individuals a little bit miserable because when, you know, you never have enough and no matter what you accomplish, you rapidly become used to it and, and you're looking towards the next thing. That's, that's, that's not a, a happy existence. That's the bad news. Collectively, it's a great thing for humanity in general that humans have this drive. It's the reason that as we sit here today, things in the world have never been better. Humans have never been healthier. Poverty levels have never been lower. People have never been wealthier. You know, on all tangible fronts, things have never been better. And yet there is kind of this discontent. And I suspect that comes from that individual you know, situation of always striving. So to your question, is that driving the FI community? Yeah, it's kind of, maybe it's possible. There's a lot of conversation in the community these, these days about what's enough look like, right? And I think those for personal satisfaction, those are important conversations to have. And FI allows us to arrange our affairs so that we can build wealth that can support us and we can make those kinds of decisions. We can decide, okay, I've, I've got enough. I don't have to stay on the treadmill. It's startling to see the changes that have happened, even in my life. I'm not that old, but when I was a kid, the house we lived in, I think, and my parents bought it new, so this was, was what a new house looked like back then. I think it was about 800 finished square feet. It was three beds. I remember the two smaller bedrooms were 10 by 10, which I think, by code might have been the minimum, although I'm not sure on that. But it had one bathroom, and we had four people living in there. And now, today, we live in a house with four bedrooms, and we have four toilets, so everyone has their own toilet, whereas when I grew up, we had one. It's pretty startling to see the inflation that has happened just in our lives. And I think of, like, air travel. I was on a plane once before I was 18, and I think now I've been on, I probably go 10 times a year on planes, which is pretty crazy. It's a 
it's amazing how much better our lives have gotten in such a short amount of time. But the the caveat to that is, Jail, I'd be curious to hear your thought on this and Doug's too, is I don't remember being unhappy as a kid either. Like maybe I, I had to wait to use the toilet every once in a while, but, but but that was it. Life was fine back then too. I don't think I'm that much happier because I have a larger home. You know, I, I, it was the same thing when I was growing up. There were five of us and we had one bathroom. And I do remember, you know, there, there would be fights over the bathroom. And, and so that was part of the childhood growing up. But, you know, like you, I mean, you don't, we didn't know what we didn't have. And I think it's important to realize that, at least for my generation, when I was growing up, because my parents, of course, came of age during the Depression. So the way we were living was, was a tremendous step up, probably the same kind of level step up that, that our children are experiencing. This does play into one of my personal pet peeves, and that is there's this trope that goes around that that says, well, you know, back in the 50s, you could you could own a house and a car and, and you know, on one income and what have you. And, well, that's true today if you're willing to drive that car and if you're willing to live in that house. You know, but now when people say, oh, I can't afford a house, they're not thinking about that 800-square-foot three-bedroom, one-bath house. They're thinking about a 2,500-square-foot, two-and-a-half-bedroom, you know, or two-and-a-half-bath, four-bedroom, you know, house with granite countertops and hardwood floors and and all this stuff. And, well, yeah, I mean, that is considerably more expensive. But if you're willing to live in that 800-square-foot house, you can probably get by on one income. And some people are choosing to do that. What was your childhood like, Doug? pretty similar to what you described. I think we had, yeah, five people in a three bedroom. I think we had a one and a half bath. So there weren't as many lines as there were at y'all's houses. But one interesting thing, like Carl, you said you each have a toilet at your house now and you even have some bidets. You're like, you've really upgraded your lifestyle. And I don't know, just how, how do you think that all... impact your kids growing up with such a fancy toilet does everybody have one or the bidet or the uh yeah, no the bidet, yeah. I, I have one and the uh one other member of my household my older daughter wants one in her toilet and the other two female members of my household hate the bidet with a passion they both have tried it they both have taken it for a test drive a test spray and they hate it <laughs> But yeah, the funny thing is, so I'll make two points, Doug, like despite us having four toilets, our children still find ways to fight over one of them. I'm like, dude, there's like three other ones just go out. Like when I was a kid, sometimes I went out in the backyard just because I didn't want to wait. And that's what you had to do. But I kind of enjoy that too. So that's- and it's Get different. outdoors. Yeah. yeah. It's different for guys. We're more equipped to do that. Right. In- I was going to say, JL, to the point of the 50s being sort of like the golden age, I was reading one of the Morgan Housel books recently, and that is cited like the 50s and 60s as one of those golden periods. He mentions that after the war, sort of the economic discrepancy between classes was sort of compressed. So like your neighbors weren't you weren't trying to keep up with the Joneses. And if you were, they were just a little bit ahead of you. So it made everyone feel a little bit more content. Do you have any thoughts about that specifically? And um, Maybe you read the book as well or whatever passage I'm thinking of. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what passage you're thinking of. I'm in the middle of his second book at the, at the moment. You know, I, th- I think there is something to be said for that because, you know, focusing on toilets for a second, if we went back 100 years ago, the conversation would be, you know, man, we are so lucky. We have an indoor toilet. You know, when our, our parents' generation, they didn't have indoor plumbing. You know, they, they had an outhouse. I mean, so every, you know, that's one of the things I was saying earlier is is because of this human drive that we have to make things better, you know, every generation is, has a higher standard of living that then becomes commonplace, right? So I, I think one of the keys to dissatisfaction, and it is kind of remarkable given how wonderful everything is in this day and age, how much dissatisfaction there is. And I think it probably comes down to envy. I mean, Charlie Munger, I think, uh, said something along the, the lines of, you know, that was the, that was the biggest problem is, is envy of what somebody else has. And in our modern age with our modern technology and, and being online all the time, what other people have is always in our face. And I think that's what makes people unhappy. It's not some arbitrary level of income or lifestyle. It's more, does that guy have more than I have? And there have been a lot of research, psychological research done on this subject that, you know, if <laughs> if if you are making... $50,000 a year and the people around you are making 40, you feel pretty good about that. If the people around you are making 60, you don't feel so good about it. And it's the same $50,000, right? It buys the same level of stuff. So yeah, I think that's that's sort of the root of our discontent is that is that envy. And to the, to the degree that you can let go of that envy is, I think, has a lot to do with how content you're going to be with your life no matter where you are. I mean, if you're Jeff Bezos and you're focused on the fact that Elon Musk has a greater net worth than you do, well, you know, that's, I mean, I guess unless you're Elon Musk, there's always going to be somebody who has a greater net worth and at some point somebody will eclipse him. So, you know, it, it can be never ending if you don't control your own emotions. Yeah, it's so interesting, JL. You hinted at this. We live in the best times ever. There are diseases that killed people two decades ago that are curable now. It's a, it's amazing all the advancement, and it's amazing how good our lives are. Yet we look at these times like the '50s and think that they're better, and they're not. But back to your point on envy, and then we'll wrap this part of it up. How do you get over stuff like that? Like you alluded to, there's always going to be someone with more than you. It, and that's part of it, acknowledging that and realize that you can't win the race, therefore you shouldn't play it. But do, you, do either of you have any other tips for getting to whatever your level of enough is and being happy at that point and just stopping and being content? I think if you decide ahead of time, that that is quite helpful. But one thing has happened around here recently. So I, I usually have that kind of stuff under control. But three of my friends in the last year have gotten tesla model y's so now i'm thinking ah that's not a bad thing but it's like my personal friends that i could like text and i see them all the time yeah you're one of them carl and and the thing is i had much lower interest in the past but now all my friends are getting it so now it's like within my circle and within my tribe 
and it's right in my face. So now I'm like, oh, well, when I do need a new car, which I don't, maybe I should look at those. Like all my friends have already vetted the process. So it is tough, but just overall, like I realize that getting more stuff like usually doesn't make me happier or more content and it's usually something else. So it doesn't mean I get, I don't get pulled to the dark side. I do, but most of the time I've decided ahead of time, like what I'm aiming for. And I try to stay like within that. In jail, we'll go to you in a second, but Doug, I have to say that I thought about the Tesla and you, and I'm envious of you because you have a lifestyle that you can walk to most of the things you need. And I'm, and sometimes I do walk to your house. It's like three miles each way, but you're, the gym is right behind you. And that's probably where I drive to the most. So I'm envious that you don't have to buy a stupid Tesla, that you have a more of a walking lifestyle. Thanks. Anyway, jail, what do you think? Well, I, I think there you go. It's it's no, no matter what you have or what your situation is, somebody is envious of you, right? So the two of you are envious of each other. I think I think Doug touched on it. I, you know, it takes a conscious effort because I think there's a certain part of our human psychology that's hardwired to look around at what everybody else has and, and be envious of it. And if you don't want to fall into that trap, I think it's it takes a conscious effort to be aware of it, and then to decide that no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let that happen. I remember when I was a kid, my mother saying to me, "Never tell anybody how much you have, because there are only two possible reactions: if they have more than you, they don't care; if they have less than you, they're going to envy you, and neither one of those is good." And I think there's a lot of truth to that. For my own part, I made a conscious decision that when I met people who were more successful than I am, who have had, who have greater wealth than I do, who achieve some significant milestone in their life, you know, people that I'm friends with, I want to celebrate with them. I don't want to be that person who resents the fact that they achieved something I didn't or have something that I don't. It's like, hey, I want to be the one that they can feel comfortable sharing that with and who they know will genuinely be happy for them and, and celebrating it along with them. And that's made a big difference in my life. I think it's made a difference to my friends who are on the receiving end of it, but it's also made a difference to me. And so I don't it doesn't bother me that other people have more than I do. And, and you know, I've met a lot of people in this community and in my business career who had significantly more than I do. And it's, it doesn't diminish what I have or what I have achieved, you know, it, and I've, and I've had plenty. If Jeff Bezos was walking down the street and he saw my entire net worth sitting on the sidewalk, it would be a poor use of his time to, to bend over and pick it up, right? It just wouldn't be worth his time. But the fact that, you know, he's worth a couple of hundred billion dollars just doesn't diminish me at all. And in fact, the, you know, the thing that he created has greatly enhanced my life. I mean, I, you know, The Simple Path to Wealth never would have been published if it hadn't been for Jeff Bezos. Because if it hadn't been for Amazon, that book never would have seen the light of day. And all the people who tell me about how that book has profoundly changed their life for the better, they would not have enjoyed that benefit if I hadn't written it. And I never would have written it because I knew no publisher would ever touch it. 
if I didn't have a platform to self-publish it on that Jeff Bezos created. So I'm not going to resent Jeff Bezos for what he has. It's not going to help me. And, you know, I've benefited enormously from what he created. So more power to him. Yeah, I think some of it's an issue with society. You always see these lists online, like the top 10 wealthiest people or the top 10 billionaires under 30. Have you seen those, Doug? Occasionally, yeah. And I think it's kind of silly. You never see an article like the top 10 uh, people who gave money away or anything like that. It's always net worth. And it becomes just like a job, part of people's identity, I think, and causes envy and other people to worship these people. Unfortunately, I wish we would get past that and uh, be more open about money and not but just from a logical point so we could help other people and not worship them or silly behavior like that. And Carl, do you want to answer the question that you asked us about how you, I don't remember the original question, how do you keep your desires in check? Yeah, that's a hard one. I am, like I said, I'm envious of you, Doug, and I'm also envious of you, JL, but not for money. It's because you're not freezing your ass off in Florida like we are here. I, I almost froze to death this morning to do this interview with you, JL. That's how much I care about you and this interview. No, I just small, made that up. A small price to pay, Carl. <laughs> uh, yeah, how to keep envy down. I've thought a lot about what makes me happy, and it's just going for a walk and erring on the side of simplicity like Doug I, I am really serious like it's pretty cool that you don't need a car most of the time and that's what makes me happy and knowing that money isn't really going to uh, money and things like I, I try to think all the time what could I buy or what experiences could I have to make me happy happy and occasionally I think of one but it's pretty difficult I just like a simple life and knowing that is I think keeps the envy down nice Here's a quick word from our sponsor, Ghostbed, amazing mattress, unreal sleep. And Carl, we're thinking about going to the economy conference and we'll be sleeping away from our, our normal uh, palace of a bed. Not that we share a bed, but we'll be at an away field. We, ha we don't have the home court advantage and we have to figure out how to sleep well. And cool thing, side note, our friend Rich, who hooked us up at Ghostbed to sponsor these shows. He's actually going to be at Economy. So he's a, a listener of the show. So we're all going to be able to hang out and stuff. But travel tips, how do you sleep well at a conference in a hotel? I usually don't. But one thing I've thought about doing is bringing some of my own stuff with me, like a pillow. And Mindy and our girls actually do this. And I always thought it was kind of silly, like more crap to bring with. But sleep is so important that I thought about doing that. And one thing I do is I sleep with a, a body pillow at home. Do you sleep with that, Doug? Or? Yeah, it's more of like a doll kind of situation. But yeah, it's something you could cuddle with. <laughs> so we were at Economy. I don't know if you remember this conversation, but I was lamenting my lack of a body pillow. And you're like, well, I, c I could be the body pillow for you for this weekend. And I thank you, Doug, for that offer. But I, I turned that down. But And I'm looking at the ghost bed site. I don't think they have one. But if they did... It'd be pretty crazy, but I might find a way to bring that sucker with me because what I usually end up doing is you call the front desk and ask for, ask for a bunch of pillows, but it's not quite the same. Right. I started traveling with a pillow, like if we're going for like more than a week or so and then we're driving, I started to bring a pillow. It made a huge difference for the sleep, but travel-wise, 
basically the best I could do is just like make the room extremely cold and turn the AC on or whatever I have to do to make it like under 60 degrees. And that usually helps out more than anything else. The other thing is like not drinking nearly as much as I used to in the past. So fingers crossed that economy, be able to get to bed a little bit earlier. How do you deal with that, by the way? The situation has been on my mind because I think my chili pad actually died a couple of days ago. I woke up mm. and you could see the current temperature and I set it like to 58 and I wake up and it's at 80. And usually there's a little bit of a difference, but not that much. But the interesting thing is I haven't been waking up hot and I also haven't been drinking. So I wonder, I think that's probably why, which is great. Yeah. But we love to drink and it's kind of a st staple at economy. So- We'll figure it out when we get there. We'll, we'll talk to Rich. Maybe he has some ghost bed suggestions, or I'll probably bring my ghost bed pillow with me. So check out Ghost Bed. It is a family-owned business. They're sleep experts with 20 years plus of experience. There's 60,000 five-star reviews, and they have a 101-night-at-home sleep trial. You could head over to ghostbed.com slash milehifi. And there's a coupon code, MileHiFi. You can get 50% off. We really appreciate it. And hang out with Rich and us at Economy. And uh, maybe you could tell us more about ghost beds. Yeah. Is Rich going to be coming to our opening party, which we can briefly mention? Do you have any idea? He better. Yeah, he better. He better bring some <laughs> ghost swag too. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about the quick opening event. Yes. Yeah, so Thursday night at Economy, I think that's the... 13th? I'm not quite sure of the date, but it is the actual day before the event starts. This is the, we call it the official unofficial party because Economy is not sponsoring it. Doug and I are along with Ellen Donegan and Mindy, my wife from Bigger Pockets. So it's going to be at 6 p.m. at Esoteric Brewing, which is pretty close. I think it's less than a mile and a half from the Fairfield, one of the main hotels. And the first 50 people will get a free drink coupon. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot to Ghostbed. We'll link up in the description and let's get back to the conversation with JL. Okay. Let, let's move on. One more question and then we'll talk about your books, JL. So th th this is a two-parter. I'll ask you the first part. Uh, so I think FIRE has evolved from a mindset of frugality, like early retirement extreme, maybe a little bit with Pete, although I don't think any of us would say he lives a life of deprivation, but he did say he lives on 24000 a year. His original post said that. But now I feel like we've evolved to more of intentional living and even spending. Do you agree with that? Do you think fire has evolved like that? You know, I don't actually. I mean, I think it's my experience with the FIRE community or the FI community, which goes back to 2011 when I first started my blog. And of course, when I first started my blog and, you know, the blogs that were out there, like Early Retirement Extreme and Mr. Money Mustache, who started, I think, a couple months before I did, you know, they were focused on the more frugal end of the spectrum. But as I started to meet people in the community and mostly at Chautauqua. So I did the first Chautauqua in 2013. I was a little stunned at the diversity of, of people who, who came. And again, diversity on all, all measures. I mean, you know, racial and ethnic diversity, certainly, but age diversity, occupational diversity, 
levels of wealth diversity, you know, gender and sexual orientation, any measure of human diversity you could think of was represented in this small group of 25 people that we'd gathered together. It was kind of incredible. And I had never thought about that as I was, I was just hoping somebody would show up, right? And so that was, that was an eye-opening thing for me. So my experience of the FI movement was not this trope that it's only for hyper-frugal people or the other side of it. It's only for, for uh, high-tech engineers, highly paid six-figure people. You know, because I, I, and then every Chautauqua after that, you know, the, the, the groups were equally diverse. So it wasn't, wasn't a fluke. So I, I think, you know, hyper frugality has always been a part of it. I think that what's come to be known as fat fire was always a part of it. But, you know, those, I th- think what, what's happened is the things beyond the hyper frugal model that were already there, suddenly people started writing about their experiences in them. So I don't I don't see it as moving away from the frugality. I think it's just acknowledging what was already there. It's a pretty pretty diverse community in terms of how people approach it. Interesting. I wonder if some of that perspective is be- maybe people who went to Chautauqua were perhaps further along on the path than when I came into it I was early on the path. Would you say that's true or did you see people from all levels of i guess net worth come to chautauqua as well yeah i i did see you know we had people you know from one extreme there there was there was a guy i can't remember who it was or even what chautauqua but remember having a one-on-one session with a guy who was still in debt who would come and i remember that distinctly because i said to him you should not this shouldn't. This is not how you should be spending your money. And we were about halfway through the week, and he corrected me, and he said, "Oh no," he said, "This is just extraordinarily beneficial." You know, I've there have been several people who've come who were just at ground zero, just at the very beginning of of their journey. And by the same token, you know, there have been people who've come to it that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's it's been a huge range. And it's that, and that's interesting to me because Chautauqua was not cheap. I mean, we did a, you know, it was a first class experience. It lasted for a week. We went to really cool places. You know, I designed it selfishly that way because that's what, how I wanted to spend the week. And so you would think that it would only be people further along in their journey. And maybe if I, I've never really run the numbers, but I imagine proportionally that was probably true, but it was certainly not entirely true. You know, the, the full range, again, that's part of the diversity that always amazed me is the full range of economic diversity was there. One observation, Carl, is a lot of the early bloggers were like tech bros and they got the most attention up front and maybe they were a little more frugal. And now, more people have, it's easier to start a blog. It's easier to spread your message and story and like share your story with people that are similar to you. And it's taken whatever, 15 years for everything to catch up or maybe just 10. And now things are a lot more um, 
diverse just in general. But w- what do you think of that? Because like you, you were kind of on the front end of it as well, even though you came in what, what like three, four, five years later than some of the original financial bloggers. Yeah, I really appreciate this conversation because I'm seeing things about myself. And you're right, Doug. A tech bro is going to be. I'm not like a tech bro has some connotations, and I'm not going to label myself as that. But I was in the tech industry, so it's going to be much easier for me to stand up a blog and write about this versus someone who may have made their money some other way in a non-technical way that isn't going to be as familiar with computers and websites and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I lived with my own tunnel vision and uh, I think we gravitate towards people who look like us. It's just human nature. So I see Mr. Money Mustache and early retirement extreme engineer type guys are similar to my age and that's unfortunately who you tend to pay more attention to. So that probably influenced me as well. I have a huge contingent of like a bald audience, which is interesting. <laughs> I never, I never thought that, but you're a hundred percent right. I, I think I saw the Facebook group with your people. Yeah. There's like hundred. It's amazing. It's a lifestyle. I would say. Yeah. You better not be outside on a sunny day and the sun might bounce off your heads and everyone would be blinded. Bring your sunblock if you ever have an event, but yeah. for real. Jail, what's your secret to your thick head of luscious hair there? Well, I don't cut it off. So, I, yeah, I, 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 I mean, that's genetics, you know, and I am uh, now I'm in my 70s and I, I guess I'm not going to go bald. I was talking to somebody, a friend of mine who was saying, you know, I was watching one of your interviews and during this particular interview, your head was shaved. I said, man, that, that's, that goes back a few years. It was probably four or five five years ago, but Every now and again, I have, you know, I would just cut all my hair off just for a change of pace. I've never been one of these people who's felt that I've always had to keep my hair at the same length. You know, I tend to let it grow and let it grow and let it grow and let it grow because I guess I don't want to bother getting haircuts. And then I have it cut short. And every now and again, I just cut it all off. And I actually, I like the way it feels when it's cut all off. Uh, but it doesn't look very good. I mean, if I was as good looking as you, Doug, I'd probably go around with a shaved head too, but I look like this, so I got to have hair to offset. (laughs) Thanks. That's kind of you to say that. All right. What's next, Carl? (laughs) Before I wrap this part up, Doug, I wanted to say that I'm kind of sad because you never got the chance to go to a Chautauqua. I went to three of them and they were probably some of the best three weeks of my life. Like Dan and Cindy, you know them. Like I met them at Chautauqua and Jason and Shana, who I don't think you have met yet, but all these great friends I have and keep in touch with. But, but Doug, maybe we should relaunch it. We could have like Camp Carl or Doug Fest or something like that. <laughs> We'd probably get like four people to show up and half of those would be us. Yeah. But, but maybe keep it in the back of your mind, Doug. Okay. I think we could work something out. Yeah. Yeah. JL, really, you know, in addition to the, to the, uh, here we are doing ads for Chautauqua, which doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, I, I, last year was the, or the year before now was the last Chautauqua. But anyway, it, it did bring, in addition to the diversity of people, just incredibly cool people. And, and I'm still friends with a lot of the, the people you may, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm friends with those guys as well. A lot of Chautauquan, I mean, Chautauquans themselves would say the coolest thing about it is I, I got to hang out with all these people who kind of, kind of get it and you know friendships formed businesses formed relationships you know there are people who met their significant others there i'm aware of at least one child that was conceived 
So, yeah, Chautauqua was, was quite the event. It, just to be clear, was the child conceived at Chautauqua? Yes. <laughs> All right. I wasn't so expecting told. So I'm told. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting that answer, but here we go. Yeah, it, it was a great experience, even better than I thought, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Well, better for some people than you. Yeah. <laughs> as good yeah, maybe as it we was for you. We could cover that in a uh, too hot for uh, mile high fi. It's on our OnlyFans <laughs> yeah. page. We'll talk to you about it later, Jail. I think we can get you on board too. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, let's talk about books. JL, you are a prolific writer, and you just came out with a new book called Pathfinders, which is great. I just got done reading it on my cruise. Can you give a brief overview for the audience about what Pathfinders is about? Yeah, so when Simple Path to Wealth came out in 2016, probably within six months, I started getting feedback from people of all different kinds of background. Uh, telling me how much the book had meant to them and how they had taken the lessons from it and implemented it into their own lives and unique situations. And some of these messages came from all over the world. And that was striking to me because I wrote this, I wrote that book for one person. And that was my daughter who was in college at the time, who's obviously an American. And so it's a book that is is kind of U.S. centric and and focused on somebody at the beginning of their journey. Well, you know, I'd hear from people in other countries that were in the middle of their journeys and had to change things to follow. So I was just endlessly fascinated by these these stories that I would hear, and and I wanted to uh, to for years I wanted to bring a book like this together. So Pathfinders, when we started it, and when I say we, I mean Chris, my editor at Harriman House. Pathfinders, by the way, is the only book that I've done through a publisher, and that was a great experience, and largely because of Chris. And so when we sat down and we were thinking about how to do this, I, I put out a call to my readership, you know, on my blog and Twitter and what have you, asking people to send in their stories. And we didn't really know if we'd get enough stories for a book, right? This was kind of an idea, but we got more than enough stories. And then the second question was, well, are they going to be any good? Are they going to be usable? And, I, and when I put out the call for the stories, I said, don't worry about whether you're a writer. You know, don't don't think to yourself, well, I'm not going to do this because, you know, just, you know, we have editors. We'll, you know, we'll, we can we can handle that part of it. Just tell us, tell us your story. Well, we got a great response. And so Pathfinders is a collection of a hundred of these stories. Some of them are only a few paragraphs long. Some of them are a few pages. As we went through them, they kind of self-organized into what are the nine sections now, everything from debt to end game, which is what it looks like when you finally achieved FI to lifestyle inflation and saving and investing and so they kind of self-organized into nine categories, and then I, I write an introduction to each of those categories, talking about because I obviously I have to express my opinion about all this stuff. So, you know what my thoughts are on that, and then we then we present the stories. And one of the most gratifying things is that the people who contributed stories and then see it in the book have gotten back and said, "Wow." You know, I I love the way you edited my story. You know, you you made it better. 
without changing my voice. And that was that means a lot to us because that was one of our big goals is to you know make it as readable for the reader as possible, but to absolutely keep the voice of the person telling the story. And uh, I think we accomplished that. And you said there's nine different sections and about a hundred different stories. Who is the right reader for this book? You know, great question, Doug. And, and early on along those same lines, one of the questions I was asked was, do you have to have read The Simple Path to Wealth first? And my answer to that was and still is, no, not at all. I mean, Pathfinder stands on its own. But then as I reflected on it, not only do you not have to read The Simple Path to Wealth first, but if you are new to this FI concept, if you're new to, to the idea of pursuing financial independence, Pathfinders is probably the better introductory book than The Simple Path to Wealth. A lot of people over the years have told me that, in fact, they, they think you guys, you know, that they buy multiple copies of The Simple Path to Wealth to give away to people to introduce them to the, to the whole idea. And that's wonderful. Uh, but I think in some ways Pathfinders is the better introductory drug, if you will, because the big question people have when they first hear about FI, I think, is, well, gee, that sounds great, but is it really doable? You know, I mean, is it something that somebody like me could really make happen? And if you read Pathfinders, you know, you'll read incredible stories. And you can't read Pathfinders and then ever look in the mirror again and say it can't be done or that I can't do it. Because you'll read stories, no matter what your circumstance is, I can almost promise you, you will read stories from people starting from more humble beginnings who have done it. And so I think that's a that's got to be incredibly inspirational to somebody who's thinking about is this this sounds great, you know. When I hear these podcasts and you know I read these books, it sounds great. But but can can ordinary real people do this? Well, Pathfinders I think answers that question. So that's that's a long answer to your question, Doug. That's who it's for. And then by the same token, if you're already on the path you know, like Carl is obviously, and you said you enjoyed it. I am. I, I, I love reading these stories. Then I think it's, there's something very satisfying about knowing how you've done it, what your path looked like, and then reading about the challenges that other people have faced and, and how they've done it. Yeah, one of the stories in the book, I can't make this up is I think he was a migrant asparagus Farmer is a child, right? Is that correct, Jail? Yeah, well, that's one of the stories I was thinking of when I said, you know, people from more humble beginnings. Yeah, he was a child migrant laborer picking asparagus in the field. And, you know, I mean, talk about a, a challenging start to your economic life. And, you know, he's well on his way. There's a, We were talking about toilets earlier in the conversation. You know, there's a story with Somebody's saying, you know, when I was growing up, the rich people were the ones who had a, had a toilet. Uh, so, I mean, there's some incredible stories in there. There's a story in there from a guy who, who is not only pursuing FI in Ukraine, but he has a podcast in Ukrainian for other Ukrainians 
pursuing FI, and their country is in the process of fighting off an invader. So, you know, I think that's inspirational. And, and it also, you know, when, when, I, when I meet people say, well, oh, that FI sounds great, but, you know, I'd have to give up my least luxury cars. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing from people who are, are worried about being bombed and they're still figuring out a way to do it. So, Wow. I didn't think the asparagus story was real. Carl told me about this. It's in our notes, but I, I wasn't sure how that fit in. But that's a quite a turn. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's – and like I say, that's not – you know, I mean, people can, it's just amazing what people can accomplish if they decide they want to accomplish. You know, I, it was Henry Ford who supposedly said, if you think you can do it or you think you can't do it, you're right. Yes. I love that quote. So good. And I think that's so true. Yeah. Doug and I are actually working on a book now, and I have found that writing a book is much harder than writing a blog post. I know you've done both as well, JL. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, you mentioned that I was prolific. I don't know if that's the right word. But, you know, it, it, at least for me, when I write a book, it takes me years to recover from the trauma to, to, to write it, to try to write another one. You know, I, Gloria Steinem was once asked if she liked writing. She was genuinely prolific. And her response to that question was, I think, perfect. She said, I like having written. And that's how I feel about it. You know, I love the fact that I've, I've got three books published. Writing the things was just sheer, sheer drudgery. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, I, I, I put the simple path to wealth together because at that point I'd been writing the blog for a number of years and, you know, I'd kind of already written the material and I thought to myself, I just have to massage this material into a book. It should be pretty easy. Well, turns out in retrospect, it's, it's easier to start from scratch than to try to massage. And, and, and you're, you're into real estate, Carl. I think you can appreciate this. It is easier, I think most people would say, to build a house from scratch than it is to take a ramshackle house and, and refurbish it. And I think that's kind of the analogy. Yeah. Although, can... thinking about that, I've just said my blog posts are ramshackle, so maybe that's not such a great thing. <laughs> I, I do completely agree with that. It would have been easier to start from nothing than to try to reconcile your previous work with a new body of work. Well, you know, one of the things, so I have the stock series on the blog, and a lot of that content is in the Simple Path to Wealth. And one of the challenges that it never occurred to me when I started, but only when I was in the middle of it, is when you write a blog post, or at least when I write a blog post, if I use any kind of terminology or jargon, I explain it in the blog post because I have to assume that I can't assume that, that anybody reading that post has read the stuff that came before, you know, in a book, you can assume that if people are in chapter five, they've read one to four, but you can't do that. I don't think 
with blog posts. So every time you bring up the 4% rule as an example, you kind of have to say a couple of words in a blog post about what that thing is. But when you, when you're trying to massage a bunch of blog posts into a book and you've done that, well, now you have to figure out, okay, where exactly have I mentioned the 4% rule as an example? And so I've got to take that out of all those chapters. And then I also have to decide at what point in the book do I introduce this concept? So it's just a a very, becomes a very complicated and cumbersome process that you you don't have if you start from scratch. And you did an audio book too. You read it yourself? Well, so on The Simple Path to Wealth, I I read it myself. Pathfinders, there's an audio book too, which is professionally narrated. And it's narrated by both male and female narrators because our stories come from both male and female storytellers. Got it. And for Simple Path, just curious of the process of recording the audiobook. Was it pretty tedious? Did you do a great job and it wasn't a big deal? How'd that go? So it was very tedious. I did a terrible job. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you know, recording the audiobook for Simple Path to Wealth, I, and, you know, Audible wanted me to record it. And I, I, I think because they felt that listeners prefer listening to books and the voice of the author. And I, I'd never done anything like that before. So I thought, well, that, that's, that's cool. I'm willing to do that. And, and they found a studio. I was living in New Hampshire at the time and they found a studio out in the New Hampshire countryside. And, and so I went there for, I want to say five consecutive days for like six hours each day, sitting in front of a microphone, talking with throat coat tea and throat lozenges. And it's, it's, it's a tough, tough thing to do. And because I'm not a professional, you know, I, what I recorded was a bit of a hot mess and, and I frequently record the same line multiple times. And now many people who've listened to the Simple Path to Wealth tell me it's, I, I have not, by the way, but they tell me it sounds wonderful. It's great. And so you did a wonderful job. And I, and I say, and I'm not being falsely humble when I say this, if that's true, and I've heard it enough that I believe it, all the credit goes to the editors who took that hot mess that, that I'd given them and, and massaged it into something that evidently sounds like I just sat down and, and it flowed out seamlessly. I've listened to it. It sounds pretty good. So, I mean, yeah. you have to take some credit, but yeah, maybe the editors did a great job. Yeah, the editors did a great job. <laughs> cool. JL and Doug, I have one last question, but it's it, it's, a, it's a different topic. Do you, either of you have anything else before we end this episode? Okay. That's good. So, Doug, last time I talked to JL, we had a little bit of a debate over pizza styles. And I don't know if I've ever asked you this before, but what is your favorite style of pizza? Because JL and I have a very different opinion. I, it, it shifts from time to time. I was going to say I do enjoy like a deep dish style currently. And there's a place in town here that does like a Detroit style. So that's like sort of fresher on my mind, but I also like an Italian, like thin crust and like a, a brick oven that's really hot. So completely different styles. I love all pizzas. 
so I'm quite open and I, I even like a, like a pizza hut, you know, like I'm that kind of a person where I'm like, yeah, pizza hut. That's great. I grew up on that stuff. Right. So you're like a pizza polygamist, polyga pizza ist. <laughs> yeah. Low standards. What, whatever. Just give it to me. Okay. Yeah. I'll what take about it. you? What, what do you got? Yeah. So JL likes the thin crust and I like the deep dish, but I th- are you talking about urban field for the Detroit style? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe I'll have to come out there and, and, and try some of that deep dish, although it's heresy. <laughs> Jail's from Chicago, the birthplace of deep dish, I think. You know, not only am I from Chicago, the birthplace of deep dish, but I ate in the restaurant back in the day when it was brand a brand new thing. Wow. Which restaurant was that? I think that was, I think it was Uno's was, was the name of it. Yeah, pizzeria. Ooh, but I remember dude. that restaurant opening because Deep Dish, as far as I know, was an entirely new concept. And, of course, everybody was super excited about it. And it was, you know, I mean, I do in, for all the teasing and, and for the rash I've given you about this, Carl. I do enjoy Deep Dish pizza as well. It's just that when I think of pizza now, because I've had Deep Dish pizza, you know, thin crust is, is where it's at. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I remember enjoying it back in the day. And I remember... You know, long lines out of that restaurant, you know, from people wanting to get in. So, Are you a sausage or pepperoni person, JL? Uh, pepperoni. Okay. Aren't you going to ask me? <laughs> yeah. <don't. laughs> yeah, we've, we've learned you'll eat anything. So yeah, yeah. Both. <laughs> Both, either or. I'll take it all. Pineapple? Yeah. Give, okay. it, give it to me. I've even... So back to asparagus i've even I, I make some pizzas at home occasionally but i'll hide asparagus like under the cheese and the <laughs> unsuspecting victims like figure it out later when they go pee and they're like did you put asparagus in this nice yeah sneak vegetables in there wow cool yeah. I, I i think that's all thank you so much jail for being on all right yeah jail where should people find the book where do you want them to go well, so the easiest thing to do is go to the blog, which is jlcollinsnh.com. And once you're there, you know, you'll see uh, covers of the book that you can click on and they'll take you to Amazon. So if you're looking for Pathfinders, one of the nice things about doing a book through a publisher is that they push it out to bookstores and evidently airports. And so I've had people say to me that, you know, they've they've seen it in the wild, so to speak. So you can get that one in, in bookstores. Simple Path to Wealth, you're probably never going to see in a bookstore. If you go to a bookstore and ask for it, they'll order it for you. But you're not going to see it on the shelf because I self-published it. But you can get it, you can get all three from Amazon easily enough. Great. We'll link it up. And thanks a lot. Good catching up. Cool. Thank you. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, 
make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. Well, recently, I mean, it's been it's been very wet. We got down here on December second, and we were in Florida last winter as well in St. Augustine for December. And I remember it being much nicer, much sunnier, and and uh, even a little warmer. But yeah, it's just been a really wet few weeks into January. You know, lots and lots of rain. So we went out. Jane and I went out for our walk this morning. I said, you know, we better get out and take our walk now because, you know, in a few hours, it's not going to be, you know, you're not going to be able to do it without getting a bath at the same time. So, (laughs) yeah, that's cool. I don't know. What part of Florida is that in? So we're in Sebastian. And if you look, we're on the Atlantic coast. If you look at a map of Florida, we're about midway uh, coast going North and South. Gotcha. All right. It's nice. And then, Carl, for your, make sure you talk a little bit. What did you do when you went to the gym this morning? I walked laps around the track, and it was quite miserable because there's no exertion involved in that. But I don't know if you've been to the gym when it's super cold. It's negative 10 here this morning. There's something wrong with the heat. I actually talked to the front desk about this. And if you go up to where the track is, it's probably like 85 in that area. So the heat overcompensates somehow. Like they have some issue. So you're barely moving around the track, sweating like crazy. It's horrible. Uh, it's like a little sauna in there. Wait a second. Don't you go to the gym to sweat? <laughs> kind of, I guess. I don't know. I don't like heat though. I'd rather err on the side of it being cold and sweat naturally because of my exertion versus the air temperature. Yeah. You need that Goldilocks. You get to sweat without any effort. <laughs> I guess so. Like being in a sauna. All right.